Welcome to season one finale of Diverse Disruptors. Before I talk about our guests, let's discuss innovation for a moment. The word innovation is everywhere. It has become a buzzword to describe a lot of things. Some might say the word is kind of overused. For example, folks have said the app Clubhouse innovated social audio, or Apple innovated the smartphone. You, you get the idea. But what does innovation actually mean? I think the website innovation management defines it the best as an idea that has been transformed into practical reality. Let's go back to that app Clubhouse for a moment. It's, it's based an app that allows people to have discussions via audio on their smartphone, specifically the iPhone. Kind of like a, a fancy conference call. And folks have called it innovative. But is it really? Remember, innovation is an idea that has become a practical reality. The app itself, if you really think about it, isn't really innovative on its own, right? Until it finds a practical or even a creative use for it. It's just a tool. For example, is a paintbrush innovative? Or the fact that someone used it to create an amazing piece of art like the Mona Lisa make it innovative? Again, back to the app, the Clubhouse app. It didn't really take off or wasn't even on people's radar until black creators found innovative uses for the app. According to Marketplace, the growth of Clubhouse could be attributed to black influencers and creators. This, this led to Clubhouse having a $1 billion valuation, better known as a unicorn. A good example of this is when a black creator by the name of Noel Chestnut Whitmore had the idea of doing a production of Lion King on the Clubhouse platform. On Christmas Day in 2020, Whitmore enlisted 40 cast members, a choir, and live instrumentations to recreate the musical Lion King on the social audio platform. The news of this performance went viral and helped propel Clubhouse to become part of mainstream culture. You can't say not only she innovated a use for Clubhouse, but also how people consume theater. She made theater more accessible to more people who would normally go to see a show in the first place. And that, to me is innovative. She took an idea and made it a practical reality. There have been many debates whether the founders of Clubhouse owe black creators like Noel compensation for helping grow their business to a valuation of $1 billion. If it wasn't for black creators and innovators, would you even know about the app in the first place? Black people in this country have done this for years, decades, and centuries, even when they were enslaved. However, a lot of times they weren't compensated or even given credit for their innovations. For example, take the game Fortnite. You know the game. In 2018, Epic, the maker of Fortnite, was sued by the rapper 2 Millie. 2 Millie accused a game developer for not giving proper credit and profiting off of one of his dance moves in the game. 2 Millie eventually dropped a lawsuit due to a Supreme Court ruling that simple routines, as they call it, aren't protected by copyright law. There's a new organization called the Black Innovation Alliance that aims to address these disparities and fight for equity. In their manifesto, they state, we claim the right for black people to profit fully from our contributions to this age of innovation. Let me say that again. 
we claim the right for black people to profit fully from our contributions to this age of innovation. Now, this alliance comprises of support organization that serves three types of black innovators. First, founders of high-growth tech companies. Next, entrepreneurs leading small and medium-sized businesses focused on long-term and sustainable growth. And finally, creative technologists and artists who use emerging technologies as their mediums. Like the aforementioned Noelle and her Lion King performance. On this season one finale of Diverse Disruptors, I talked to Black Innovation Alliance Executive Director Dr. Kelly Burton and Erin Horn McKinney, who's also the CEO of Women Venture and founding member of Black Innovation Alliance, about how this idea got started and why this alliance is so important now. So I'm here with Erin Horn McKinney and Kelly Burton of the Black Innovation Alliance. And before we get into what that is and why they created, I just want to give some uh, background on you, you two uh, amazing women. So can we start with uh, Kelly and Aaron? Like, what's your childhood like? And like, how did your childhood play an inspiration in your current career path? Kelly? So what was my childhood like? I had a very happy childhood. I, I grew up in Camden, New Jersey, which when I was a little girl growing up in the 80s was the identified as the murder capital of the country, interestingly enough, because it's a little city outside of Philadelphia that had a very high murder rate. By the time I was about 12 years old, my mom and my dad got divorced and we moved with my mom to the suburbs. And going from Camden to suburban New Jersey, that experience was like like foundational for me. It was very formative. Seeing the disparity and the lack and then going to the suburb and seeing this, the profound access of resources, it was like two worlds. And so I said, I need to somehow figure out my life needs to be about how I make sure like the people that I grew up with have access to the same opportunities as these other lovely people. Because it was very, very clear that your place, like where you're born has all sorts of implications for your life outcomes. But despite that, you know, growing up, growing up in the hood, I was loved. You know, I was loved. I had family. I had community. I had faith. I had all the good stuff, all the necessary stuff, even though um, societally things were not in place in the ways that they needed to be. How about you, Erin? Well, I have a sordid tale, to be honest, one that is very unexpected. Most people, when they hear about it. So I actually was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but moved within my first year of life. My parents decided they wanted to move west, and they were young revolutionaries, to be honest. And so my mom was a nurse. She got a job at a on an Indian reservation in uh, Arizona. And my dad went with her and decided to live out his, like, black cowboy dreams. I'm not, <laughs> I don't really know. I, you know, that's just a question I need to ask. I'm like, what caused all this? Anyway, so for the first five years of my life, I lived on a ranch in the middle of nowhere. And our nearest neighbors, like, lived in an adobe about three miles away. Um, I have a, a diverse family. My mom is uh, Jewish and my dad is African-American and, you know, all the things that go with both of those oppressed people. But, you know, as a kid, you don't think about that. Right. And so my grandparents were living 
in Maryland. My grandfather got sick. And so my parents decided to move there to support them. And my grandparents lived in one of the wealthiest suburbs in the country in Potomac, Maryland. And so we moved there. So cultural shock, right? I went to a predominantly fluent Jewish community. And it was the first time that in my life, people always asked me, what are you? And I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> like, so, but then people, you know, but race started to be introduced. Right. And so I'm like, well, my dad's black and my mom's white. So I'm brown. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> and so, but it didn't work out when I used crayons. Right. So I used the black crayon and the white crayon and I'd get gray. So, <laughs> it was, I was blown. So anyway, fast forward, right as I was graduating from elementary school, my dad, decided to go to law school and he was already his undergraduate degree was in agriculture hence the the ranch and he wanted to go into agricultural law and focus on black farmers so he moved mm. uh, he got a full ride to law school at Hamlin University in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota so boom my family moved just as I was going into uh which is now called middle school, but back in the day, y'all know it was called junior high. So as we were moving to junior high school, moved to Minneapolis, into North Minneapolis, which was the complete hood in the crack 80s, okay? So literally uh, a block, two blocks from my house was uh, a McDonald's at, uh, on the corner of Penn and Plymouth in North Minneapolis, which was like they sell crack out of the McDonald's, right? And I, I grew up seeing people get shot, you know, being gangs, the whole kit and caboodle. And that was jarring because I realized I came like talking Valley girl from Potomac, Maryland to being, you know, in the inner city in a very critical time in the black community. And that was just really pivotal for me and really also realizing, because yet again, question about race all the time and realizing like you had to pick a side, like people were really mm. <laughs> adamant, like they had to categorize you. So, uh, but also being in the black community and at the time uh, there was only one black radio station and it was the community radio station, KMOJ. And it really yeah. was pivotal to me in my career, you know, before, uh, the internet, you know, is all about telecommunications, right? And I just knew I wanted to own a radio station or a TV station or some sort of media outlet because I, as a teenager, was so frustrated that when I wanted to see images of people that looked like me, when I wanted to hear music that I wanted to listen to, I couldn't get it. And so when BET came out and MTV and stuff came out like that, I was like, whoa, this is a big deal. And it, it realized... I realized um, that I wanted to do anything possible related to media to control what we see, what we hear, and the reflection of ourselves in it. Wow. So um, let's talk about your, your path into what led to Black Innovation Alliance. Both of you have started previous organizations. Kelly, I think, is Founders of Color. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Aaron, you had Black female founders. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So tell me how... what. What path led to those organizations? Let's start with Kelly. I found at this stage of life, it's so hard to ask. Like, I don't even know how I got here. Left New Jersey at 18 years old to come to Atlanta. Went to Clark Atlanta University. Graduated in 2000 with my B in political science. Went to graduate school at Emory University. Um, got my PhD in political science. I thought I wanted to go into public service. That didn't work out. Knew I didn't necessarily want to go on the tenure track. 
Uh, and so when I graduated, it was kind of like, okay, so what do I do with myself now? I had been doing some consulting up until that point. And so I said, you know, let me just go out there and consult and start a consultancy. And so that's what I did in 2009. I started Nexus Research Group, a social impact consulting firm where we work with a lot of like foundations, nonprofits, government agencies and all sorts of social impact work. You know, I was running NRG for several years and decided, you know what, I'm going to only be able to scale this consultancy, but so much. I need another big idea that's going to enable me to have the sort of impact in the world that I want. So I started a startup venture, had no idea what I was doing, didn't have access to the capital, the resources, the relationships that I needed in order to effectively scale it because it was fundamentally different than this boutique consultancy that I had grown. And so after three years, it, I shuttered it after investing about $200,000 of my own money in it. And coming out of that experience, I said, you know what? Entrepreneurship is hard, but it probably shouldn't be this hard. It probably shouldn't be this difficult. Um, and I was a contributor for the HuffPost at that time. And I wrote this piece on like how to keep your startup out of the startup graveyard or something like that. And um, because I felt that it was important to be transparent. So many people want to talk about the one out of 10 that's successful, but not about the nine out of 10 that are not. And I wanted to be very honest about that experience because I didn't want other people to internalize that failure in the same ways that I had. And so that was the impetus behind Founders of Color. So at FOC, our mission is to help minority small businesses to grow and scale um, and ultimately to help close what we call the small business growth gap. So right now, white-led companies generate about 10 times the revenue of Black companies, Mm. eight times the revenue of Latino companies. So that's what our focus is at FOC. Okay. How about you, Aaron? How did you get your path to uh, have the black female founders? Well, much like Kelly, I mean, you know, you don't you don't write this down when you're in kindergarten and say, this is what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> Indeed. So for me, I, I started my career really in national advertising and quote unquote being like the millennial at that time in the late 90s, early 2000s, dot coms were a, a big thing and they were doing a lot of advertising and nobody wanted to deal with them because they were like, I, we don't are these even real companies, but they were paying big money to be in advertising. So I would just always be at all these tech events, you know, and I, I will not, let me mention this while being at those tech events. I literally was ignored like people would not talk mm. to me. They would they act like I didn't exist because at that time it was nothing but white men. There weren't even white women on the scene. <laughs> it was white men. And so if I come up into a conversation and start trying to talk and engage or whatever, it was just like I was invisible. But fast forward, I moved back to the Twin Cities, was working in national advertising here, also um, still going to a lot of tech events. And interestingly, I started my own marketing communications firm just for a, a lot of needs around diversity marketing efforts in the Twin Cities and beyond. And I started this e-newsletter back when there was e-groups. Y'all remember that before it was acquired <laughs> by, <laughs> by Yahoo groups. But it was um, I started this e-group called Soul on Ice. And it was all about like ways to connect. It was just content. It was like, here are all the hot spots. Here are the things to do. Just And really, it was an attraction and retention tool to help a lot of the corporations in the Twin Cities, because what a lot of people don't know is that the Twin Cities has the largest concentration of Fortune 500 companies. Um, And so they attract so the land of black MBAs. So they attract all these black MBAs here and they're really and so huh. forth. Yeah. And but people hate it because they're like, where are the black people? Where, where no. <laughs> so I so I was doing that and doing all these like diversity guides to the Twin Cities and all this other stuff. But it was interesting 
you know, at the same time of going to these tech events and seeing, you know, these white men pitch to, you know, be on the plane to go pitch in the valley. And I never, it never even dawned on me that I was a tech entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm sitting there trying to help them with their business, but I didn't even see myself. I mean, I was doing, I would hear some of their ideas and I'm thinking, well, I'm doing something similar to that, but I'm not putting myself in that same context. Fast forward, I ended up working in the Valley uh, or just in the Bay Area rather. And uh, I, my CTO for Soul and Ice had moved there to work on a startup. My One of my clients, my advertising clients was working for Baby Center. She and I became really close. We came up with this really, what I thought and still think was an amazing idea at, for a tech startup. And she was um, amazingly kind of to me like this, anomaly because she was like one of the first black people that I met that had worked at tech companies and mostly had only worked at tech companies because she grew up on the peninsula. She worked at the early days of Yahoo. She had worked at eBay. Like she just worked at tech companies, but she admitted she rarely ever saw black people. Um, But she was on the marketing side. We come up with this idea, talk to my the former CTO who decides to join our group. And so we start applying to, because of the two of them, they're in the ecosystem. We applied to Y Combinator. So this is the mid 2000s. So, you know, we just, there weren't a lot of programs, but we did all these different things to get in. And we were always told no, right? And then I started to realize, wait a minute, the people that run these programs are white men and they're only letting white men into these programs. We're a team of two black women and a black man. I could race possibly play a part in that? <laughs> and, and I got, and, and simultaneously, I had also started trying to get employment in uh, tech and, or on sales teams. And all my white counterparts, some who didn't even graduate from college, were getting jobs, but not able to, um, they were getting jobs. But when I was interviewing, I literally was being told by HR departments that, hey, you went you went to an HBCU because I went to the Howard University and uh, they and, I, and they were like, and so we ranked that lower. I was so blown by that concept. And so I had what I call my legally blonde movement a moment, moved to D.C., got into tech policy to talk about employment and entrepreneurship. Hmm. Fast forward after working in trade associations, leading a trade association for um, women and minorities in tech and all this other stuff. I ended up working in the mayor's office in DC uh, and uh, leading tech and innovation strategy because DC wanted to be the first or the, the first inclusive tech hub in the country. And so led oh. strategy under two mayors. But in the process of that, what I noticed is no matter if we went to South by Southwest, if it was a conference in the Valley, because people were starting, like tech was starting to become a thing, right? Because when I first moved to D.C., people were just talking about digital divide issues and tech policy wasn't what it is now or labeled the same way. It was new media, okay, policy. (laughs) And so, um, but whenever there was a conversation around inclusion, it was always white women, sometimes Asian, what have you, and black men. It was never, there was never black women included in it. Mm. And I had started to go to these uh, black tech dinners uh, that I thought were really interesting, but usually there weren't that many black women at these black tech dinners. And um, I thought, you know what, we, and so there was one uh, fellow tech founder who I was giving a ride home one day and I was like, I wish there was something just for us, like to help us, like, like a sisterhood so we could support each other. So we, you know, the plan was just to start a dinner group 
just for us to kind of have this sisterhood and, and have fellowship to kind of talk about struggles and share resources. So we went to Google in DC and asked them to host our first dinner group. We said it won't be more than including the founders of BFF and everybody. It won't be more than in your staff. It won't be more than 20 people, maybe 30. And we had over 200 RSVPs for our first event. And we were like, wait, wow. okay. <laughs> what, wait, what now? <laughs> so, and so, through Black Female Founders, we we started off as a global membership organization just to share information with each other really simply, not to even be like super organized. But people were like, we had these other needs. So we, we piloted BFF Labs, which was a pre-accelerator to get people prepared so they could go into programs and know the ecosystem and know the language because it's it's a lot because BFFs were going into programs and failing because, but they were just there to be tokens in the pictures. Right. And so now uh, we're, we literally were in the process of kind of, to be honest, shutting BFF down to a certain degree because so many organizations have started that I think are awesome that weren't there when we started BFF, uh, whether that's black women talk tech or uh, black tech women or, you know, Black Girl Ventures. I mean, there's all these organizations. So is there still a need? But what we have realized is maybe BFF isn't needed anymore because there's there's other things. But now there's like these whole other things that have popped up. Um, and BIA has really contributed to us changing and pivoting um, and realizing for us as a community that we're needed now more than ever. That was Kelly and Erin sharing their journey into tech. Coming up after the break on Diverse Disruptors. Erin and Kelly share their inspiration behind the Black Innovation Alliance and the importance of Black prosperity and ownership and why the Alliance is a demonstration of Black love. That's next on Diverse Disruptors. Diverse Disruptors is presented by United Ways Techquity, an initiative of Technology United. Techquity strives to bridge the divide throughout the community for students, job seekers, and vulnerable populations. Support for Diverse Disruptors comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Support for Diverse Disruptors comes from your membership and from Carthage College. Carthage is committed to embracing diversity, promoting inclusion, and practicing equity to nurture a true sense of belonging to individuals within the campus community. More about Carthage's diversity and inclusion commitments at carthage.edu. Talk to me, one, where the inspiration came from, because it's a, it's a big vision. I mean, I'm just really love, I've been reading the website. I'm just like, wow, this is, this is really amazing. Two, how did you two meet? You know, you're in Atlanta, you're yeah. DC, Minneapolis, somewhere up there. How did you meet? Where the idea come from? Start there. Well, I can tell you how we met. I I was starting Founders of Color, and I saw all the amazing stuff that Black female founders was doing, and I reached out like, "Hi, Erin. Um, you don't know me, but my name is Kelly, and I'm starting this thing. I love what you're doing, and can we hop on a call or some version of that?" And at that time, Erin is absolutely right in terms of an organization for which there is just a lot of buzz and momentum and activity, like just their Facebook group alone was popping. I mean, it was popping. And so I had a tremendous amount of respect for their model, but also me being a nonprofit consultant and seeing 
over my career, how folks will have a bright idea and be like, oh, I have this bright idea. Surely the world has been waiting for me to come down and plop down my thing to, to fix it and change it. Um, I wanted to reach out to people who are already doing it to say, I think that there is an opportunity to do this thing. Do you also see a need for this thing? Or am I just duplicating efforts? And so that's when we first met. But it's like after we first met, we were constantly like crossing paths. Um, and that's just how it is. Once you get engaged in this work, the world just gets really, really small. And so that's how we first met. And I was like, oh, this woman is like super dope because she's like calling attention uh, and really just bringing data to to the space in that way. Um, but additionally, like, yes, our past cross, we ended up being at, like everybody, right? We end up being at all the same conferences and at all the same things. <laughs> and what I will just segue into and just clarify, you know, I'm not the founder of BIA. Kelly and Ania are the founders. I just... I just felt like, look, these are two dope women that are bringing a group of dope black people together and to do innovative stuff. And of course, like, like Issa Rae, I'm rooting for everybody black and I'm going to do my part. So I'm just thankful to be along to help and inform. Talk to me about the idea, the inspiration. Was this idea birth during the pandemic or was it before the pandemic? It was before the pandemic. And I would say that there are individuals in this group that have been having this conversation for years, right? You know, I'm sure in our initial conversation, there was like, oh, that we should partner or we should collaborate. Or, but the challenge of it is the organizations that exist to support Black entrepreneurs, innovators, tech creatives, tech founders, we don't have a lot of bandwidth. And there's a whole lot of static in our community, like Black people don't want to collaborate. That's bullshit. Like, I mean, it's be like we have our our challenges like everybody else. Like, but there's a tremendous amount of trauma in the black community and a lot of kind of scarcity mentality that we are trying our best to shed, but society doesn't really allow us to do that because we stay in scarcity mode. So when you're in scarcity mode, it's very, very difficult to collaborate. What has previously happened is that people were very intimidated by working together because the scarcity of resources forced us to be competitive instead of working together and asking collectively for support. So it's really been, honestly, the best way to describe it to me is kind of like Black innovators homecoming all day long, right? <laughs> I love that. We're our own HBCU, <laughs> right? And it could because it's, it's all the things that we talked about with the HBCU experience. Like we're we're, give, yes. we're teaching each other, you know, how to really you know make a stronger ask and building our kind of organizational self-esteems and really giving a safe space to analyze our organizations and say, okay, where do you really need help? And 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 finally, like being this honest, like l they're being like lifeguards to yeah. each other. Uh, so it is, it's something that we needed so greatly and we didn't even know that we needed. Oh my God, Aaron, I love that. I, I, there are so many quotable, I can't wait to get this, <laughs> I can, like write all that down. We are lifeguards to each other. Yes. And like homecoming all day long. It is that right. And it, and it feels real, you know, we're having a love party and a love fest, but it's true. And we talk about it all the time, but BIA is a demonstration in Black love. Like, we are clear. Um, it's going to take love in order for this to last 200 years. So what does that look like? Like, how do we create not only an organization that can last for 100 years, because we have Black organizations that last 100 years, but how do you create an organization that not only lasts 100 years, but remains relevant 
at every juncture in that mm-hmm. in that experience and in that story. And so if that's something that we want to accomplish and create, we need to be mindful of that from the very beginning. Like what does that foundation look like? And how do you how do you put those pillars in the ground? For the people out there, what is Black Innovation Alliance? And uh and then explain the vision and then you mentioned the manifesto, then talk about the manifesto. So the Black Innovator Alliance exists to build the sort of ecosystem that Black innovators deserve, right? Um, Because there's a lot of conversation about, you know, how do we help small businesses grow? How do we connect tech founders to the resources that they need in order to scale? Um, uh, You need an, an an active and effective and efficient ecosystem to do that. And right now we've got a lot of actors and stakeholders that are doing a lot of things as a lot of activity, but there's not a, a lot of connectivity, right? There's not a lot of cohesion. There's not a lot of uh, connective tissue that enables us to deliver resources in a way that's highly efficient. I mean, you go to your website, you have the manifesto, you have a pledge. Uh, I was reading the pledge and you, 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 you kind of reinforce the term black prosperity. Ooh. Talk to me, why is that such an important piece? It feels like an important piece to BIA. And what does that mean? Black prosperity. I mean, Mm. beyond the the Webster Dictionary. I got goosebumps just hearing you say that. Um, (laughs) And we had a really great conversation about this, right, Aaron? We're in the manifesto language. Let me, you know, for me, I'm a communication scientist, but we, t- we uh, to Kelly's point, we talk a lot about how do we create the language that doesn't exist to help, like, empower people. Yes, absolutely. And for us, Black prosperity is not just about money. It's like prosperity in terms of your mental state, prosperity in terms of the land acquisition. Yeah, prosperity in terms of your assets. But there's so many other areas that we need to further explore and develop Black prosperity because there's so many ways that Black people in this country have been stripped Ways mm-hmm. that we can't even really quantify or we're not even aware of. There's all sorts of stuff that's coming out that's causing us to realize like the accumulated harm that has been inflicted on black people in this country, like that we hold that trauma in our bodies. Right. And so what does it mean to take a holistic approach to black prosperity and be OK with saying this is a space that we need to create for black people? For us, and it's not about being exclusionary. It's about taking care of home. And if I can just add, because really the, you know, the Black Innovation Alliance really is a collective of Afrofuturists, right? Mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, we really analyze what what does the term Black wealth mean? Mm-hmm. And to Kelly's point, you know, we really started saying Black wealth isn't just financial, right? It's like our, it's our physical health. It's our mental health. It's our, you know, financial health. It is our spiritual health. It's like Mm -hmm. that holistic approach. So I just want to give that context because as we look forward, you know, we are the visionaries and, you know, you know, not to be um, cliche about it, but, you know, we are the future and we have to be the change. Yeah. And we know what our communities need. We are the most resourceful bunch of people on the planet. Can you imagine if folks really gave us the resources necessary to solve our problems, what we'd be able to do? It blows my mind. So that's the, those are the messages that we plan to create the soapbox for and the megaphone for. Like we're going to, you're not going to be able to come with the reason as to why you can't give us the money that we need. So talk to me first for those 
kind of do abbreviated uh, description of what the racial wealth gap is for our listeners. They don't know. And then how do you see Black Innovation Alliance helping shrink that gap? So I'll start really quick. Um, What we know is that the average white child enters the world with 10 times the inherited wealth. 10 times, right? So that's going to determine where that child is born, the hospital they're born in, you know, how they get home from the hospital, the neighborhood they return to, where their parents work, how their parents get to work, where they live, the house, the neighborhood, the, the extent to which there's a grocery store in that neighborhood, right? And so this is a country where we like to talk about individualism and meritocracy, but I'm like in a society where one group enters the world with 10 times the resources as another group that cancels out meritocracy. Like that's not even a thing. Like, why are we even still having that conversation? And so what we know is that when it comes to wealth, like global wealth is created one of two ways, inheritance or entrepreneurship. Like that's, we can have everything else that's done with to create wealth happens because you typically got the money from one or the other, right? Um, and so if we are going to close this wealth gap, which according to a recent report is gonna take 228 years to close the wealth gap between white folks and black folks, if we're going to do that, it's like, what's the one, if we had one thing that could get us there, it would be entrepreneurship. And for us, it's a focus on ownership. So ownership of your business, ownership of your assets, ownership of your intellectual property, right? Not just extracting from us for our labor and our ideas and our thoughts and our pick your brain sessions, right? But how do we create wealth, wealth that we own, right? So that we're not staring down 228 years of disparity. Yeah. So I will add that, you know, a lot of times people don't see creatives as entrepreneurs and they don't see entrepreneurs as creatives, but they really want them the same. Right. Like um, a lot of the work in early on for me in my career was about connecting resources to entrepreneurs that really mirrored the art community. You know, people create fellowships for artists. They create um, their, their residencies and funding so that people have the space to create. But that, that same, those same resources have not been applied to tech entrepreneurship or to any sort of innovative businesses. Um, and then the reverse, you know, for creatives, a lot of times, you know, first of all, let's just back up and say this, I don't care what business that you're in at this point, it's becoming tech enabled and there's some infusion of tech into your work, whether it's just how you take payments, whether you're, you know, whether you are infusing it into your business from a standpoint of like just how you conduct your business. Right. Um, So it it is really creating the empowerment around that. But going back to the creative specifically is that we have a number of creatives who are working in this space and and, um, are not seeing themselves one as on entrepreneurs. And it's, there's really been a lot of language, not just in our community, but even Kaufman has talked about this around, you know, using a different word other than entrepreneurship, because it's interesting how people don't define themselves as entrepreneurs. Um, They might call themselves business owners, or they might call themselves artists, or they might, you know, there's different terms, but language is really important. 
So when we, we looked at some of the individuals, one of the main things that we did kind of go into the mapping conversation is we looked at the individuals served by each of our organizations. And some of the organizations that are part of BIA serve creatives. And they really were very <laughs> strong advocates, like don't forget our community in the process. We don't want to only talk about the tech uh, innovators. We want to talk about how they can participate as well. But it is also to bring awareness to the gaps that exist and call people out. You know, we are in the we are in this whole cancel culture, dragging of organizations and so forth and so on. So it's like really in this what's mm-hmm. happening right now is all these organizations are being called out for what they their uh right. racist and sexist practices to date, uh whether those are uh, investors, whether those are, you know, because it's not just in right, the private right, sector, it's also right. in the, the, you know, philanthropic community mm-hmm. as well. True. And we're, we are leading the charge on calling out organizations on these practices and saying, look, if, you, if you're having a hard time identifying an organization to give this money to and in this way, let us help you because it can no longer yep. be an excuse that you don't have pipeline, that you don't know anyone and you don't, you know, or they don't exist. That was Dr. Kelly Burton and Erin Horn McKinney from the Black Innovation Alliance, a unique organization with a mission to ensure that Black ownership is increasing through equitable participation in the innovation economy. Currently, the Alliance is working with 30 support organizations across the country. If you want to learn more, visit the website at blackinnovationalliance.com. Thank you for listening to season one's final episode of Diverse Disruptors. If this is your first time listening, Make sure you check out the other episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please rate and give feedback. We'll be back later this year with Season 2 of Diverse Disruptors. In the meantime, check our website for more content and upcoming events at RadioMilwaukee.org slash disruptors. I'm your host, Tariq Moody. Diverse Disruptors is presented by Northwestern Mutual and United Ways Tequity with support from Carthage College. Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by myself, Nate Immig, with production support from Kenny Perez. Marketing by Sarah Lahr and Aaron Bagata with community outreach by Maddie Reardon. Our development director is Maggie Corey. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director. Jordan Lee is our station director, and Kevin Sucker is 88.9's executive director. Biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content on 88.9 possible. You can find out more about membership at radiomilwaukee.org slash support. Diverse Disruptors is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.